The title of tonight's message is called Indestructible. Indestructible. We're going to continue on the attitude of the faith, the attitude of our family banner tonight. Man, we have been hearing some incredible messages, haven't we? We've been learning all about our banner. We've been learning all about our promise under that banner. We've learned about our attitude that our family is supposed to have. And tonight, we're going to deepen that. We're going to cause that to go even further. And we're going to deepen our walk with the, with the Lord tonight. Amen? Amen? Before we start, I want to just say how proud I am to be in this body. This body is unlike any other body that I have seen, heard of, or visited, or been a part of. There's nothing like this body. And I've been to a lot of churches since 2008. I've visited so many things that I have never been a part of a more radical, fired-up, sacrificial, giving-of-our-lives kind of church like this. When people walk through these doors, they can tell that we are in love with someone who is not in the room. They may not know him, but they can tell that we love him. Amen? When I first walked into this church, I looked around and I couldn't believe what my eyes saw. I saw men and women who were not afraid to be who they were to be truly real, to be the same person that they were outside of these walls in here. And I saw that they were in love with the King of Kings. And I want to commend this body and how proud I am to be in a church with men like the Rosales brothers. Come on, man. Isn't it exciting that we don't just have one, we don't just have two, but we've got three brothers and the Lord is growing their family. I'm excited to be in a church with a man like Carlos Rueda. I can't tell you how much he waters my soul seeing his passion for the King of Kings. I'm excited being in a church with a man like Daniel Cho, who is faithful to continue and get revelation. I'm excited to be in a church with a man like Ohad Shul, who will not give up on what God has promised him. You guys ought to give a hand for this body. Brother Tom, I'm excited to be in a church with men like yourselves who are faithful even though there's difficulty, faithful to see what God has in store and to use the time wisely. I can't tell you how much that means, brother. The title is Indestructible. We want to dig right into the Word. We've been talking about signs and symbols in the heaven. Isn't that exciting? The Old Testament word, the Hebrew word behind Sign is oat. It's Old Testament 2.26 in the Strong's Concordance. It means a sign, a signal, a distinguishing mark, a banner, a miraculous sign, an omen, a warning, a standard, a miracle, or a proof. When we look through the Word, plug in that Word on your own free time and study signs in the Word, and you're going to see that 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 word shows up over and over and over, and it's used in some incredible ways. It first appears in Genesis 1:14 through 17. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the sky to separate the day from the night, and let them serve as signs to mark the days and years, and let them be lights in the expanse of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. And God made two great lights. You guys learned something incredible about those two great lights? Have you seen that those two great lights are a sign to us? To ancient man, they were a sign 
to mark the days and the seasons and the years. God creates something to be a sign. He uses His creation, something that no other person can do. He creates something out of nothing so that it will be a sign to the inhabitants of the earth. Isn't that incredible? Genesis 9, 12-14. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant I am making between me and you and every living creature with you. A covenant for all generations to come. I have set my rainbow in the clouds, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. God again creates something supernatural that man has no control over, that man cannot dictate, that man cannot create themselves, and he uses it as a sign between him and the inhabitants of the earth. Pastor Matt and Pastor Wade's commentary on it is priceless. It is God's sign, and man can't use that sign for whatever wicked, devilish agenda that they want to use it for. It is God's sign and no one else's. God gives signs. To his people. Psalm 19 verse 1 says the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Isn't that strange? The sky and the heavens are pouring forth speech. Night after night they display knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Their voice goes out into all the earth. Talk about evangelism. Man, Part of the work has already been done for us. Because those skies and the things God has created has gone out. Their voice has gone out since they were created. Their voice go out into all the earth. Their words to the end of the world. Creation is literally a sign that God is God. That God is eternal and supreme and worthy. Romans 1.18 verse 20. I told you I was going to give you meat so you got to keep up. No time to grab the steak sauce tonight. No time to use your forks tonight. We're going to keep chewing and chewing until we have our fill. Romans chapter 1 verse 18 says, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. That's all wickedness tries to do, do, folks, is suppress the truth. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, It's very plain, because God has made it plain. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without what church? Excuse. There is not one person on the face of the planet who has an excuse before Almighty God. Because they can look around them. They can see the creation. They can see the mountains. They can see the stars. They can see the literal signs that God has put on the earth to declare who He is. There is not one person who can go to God and say, I'm not guilty. I didn't know that you didn't like my sin. I didn't know that you hated sin. Because you can look and know. You can look and see like the prophet said. Look and live. Look and live. Because God's signs are everywhere. They're everywhere. Isn't it amazing that we don't need a preacher to stand up behind the pulpit and declare God's glory? It's right before us if we just open our eyes. It's right before us. Like the old preachers used to say, if God's glory stopped shining, if the sun, if the sun stopped shining, it wouldn't be any less glorious. And if you couldn't see God's glory, it still wouldn't be less glorious because He's God. God's glory doesn't need you to witness it. He is who He is. 
And God is a witness through his creation. He has set signs. Exodus 3, we're going to continue along this path. Exodus 3, 12, God said, I will be with you, and this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. Now, why is God saying that? It's because he's telling Moses, this is what you're going to do. And Moses is saying, what is the sign you're going to give me? What sign will you give me to show that it is really you who's speaking to me? You would think if we hear God's voice, it's enough. But no, we ask for a sign. Let me ask you a question. When you ask God for a sign, is that a bad thing or a good thing? Anybody afraid to speak up? Is it a good thing or a bad thing to ask God for a sign? All right. God set a sign. He gave a sign to Moses. And what was the sign? His sign is, when you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. He's telling him, look, when you fulfilled everything I've told you, that's the sign that I'm with you. Now get to work. Exodus 4. Verse 30, and Aaron told them everything the Lord had said to Moses. He had also performed the signs in front of the people. God gave them literal signs to prove to the people. Exodus 7, verse 3, God's saying, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my miraculous signs and wonders in Egypt, verse 4 says, he will not listen to you. Man, isn't that incredible? He hardens the head of a nation, so that he can multiply his signs throughout Egypt. It's like God wants to display his glory. God wants to put his sign in the place where God is not known so that everyone can see who he is. We are starting to see through the word that God uses signs regularly. We really haven't even left. We really have been in the Torah Mostly through this, just in the Torah, God is showing how he uses signs and it gets even better, church. These are the signs. These are just some of the few examples that God uses as signs. God uses the Sabbaths as a sign in Exodus 31, 13. He uses circumcision as a sign in Genesis 17, 11. He uses the law as a sign in Deuteronomy 6, 8. He literally says, Bind these symbols on your hand. Bind these signs. Bind these oats to your hand. The law of the Lord is a sign. In Deuteronomy 29, 3, miracles are signs from God. He tells them, you yourselves have seen the signs that I did in Egypt. You yourselves have seen the miraculous things that I did. In Judges 6, he's speaking to, to Gideon and Gideon asks for a sign. And God uses favor and affirmation as a sign. In 1 Samuel 14, 40, he uses challenges as a sign. He uses hardships as a sign. In Psalm 74, verse 9, he uses the actions of the prophets as a sign. In Isaiah 37, 30, he says that the promises of God are a sign to the people. In 1 Corinthians 14.22, it says that tongues are a sign for the unbeliever, not for the unbeliever. Tongues are a sign for the believer. Tongues are a sign when the interpretation is given for the unbeliever. Tongues can be a sign. 
So you're starting to see how much in the Word God uses these signs. How important is it that we recognize the signs? Daniel 4, verse 3 says, how great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. God's signs are not just like any other sign. He gives, what does it say? He gives mighty wonders and he gives great signs. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. And God gives signs that can never be taken away. Deuteronomy 32, verse 3 through 4. This ought to be a personal favorite. I will proclaim the name of the Lord. Oh, praise the greatness of our God. He is the rock. His works are perfect. A faithful God who does no wrong. Upright and just is He. He is a God who does no wrong. When God plants a sign, it is a perfect sign. It could never be a wrong sign. It is a just sign. And it is upright. There is no sign that God's plant that God plants that can be uprooted, that can be taken down, that can be erased, because He is the Rock. Jeremiah thirty-three verse nineteen. You guys getting tired of all these scriptures? Or do you want more? Oh, it's getting good. Jeremiah thirty-three verse nineteen. My personal favorite sign. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. This is what the Lord says. If you can break my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night so that the day and night no longer come at their appointed times, then my covenant with David, my servant, and my covenant with the Levites, who are priests ministering before me, can be broken and David will no longer have a descendant to reign on the throne. God is saying, my signs, the sun and the moon, are eternal and they cannot be broken. And therefore my covenant cannot be broken. God is an eternal God and He does no wrong. When God plants a sign, no man can uproot it. You hearing me, church? When God sets a sign in the sky, there is nothing that anyone on the earth, below the earth, or in the heavens can do to remove that sign. That sign will stay because it is God's sign. Psalm 119, 89 affirms this says, Your word, O Lord, is eternal. It stands firm in the heavens. Your faithfulness continues through all generations. You establish the earth and it endures. Again, when God sets a sign, it endures. It stands firm in the heavens. Nothing that God does can be torn down. You see, the Old Testament culture understood this. The men in Jesus' time in ancient Israel 2,000 years ago understood this. They had developed a culture that looked for signs. They had developed a culture that understood that signs would accompany great things that God was going to do on the earth. You can see this in Matthew 12, 38. Then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, Teacher, we want to see a miraculous sign from you. And you know Jesus' response a wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign? Matthew 24, verse 3. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to Him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? They knew that there had to be a sign and they were asking God. They were asking Jesus for an oat. 1 Corinthians 1.21 Actually, verse 22. 
the Jews demand miraculous signs and the Greeks look for wisdom. Again, it was ingrained in their culture to look for signs because they knew that anything God do- did, he would set a sign. He would set a miraculous event. They knew and they were ready for this. Church, the world is looking for a sign. The world is looking for a sign. The world is looking for a sign. They want to see what is pointing to the righteous way. They want to see. They want to find what is pointing to the narrow way. The world is looking for a sign. And how is God going to give it? How is God going to give His sign throughout the earth? Through us. Let's turn to 2 Chronicles 28. We're going to give a little backstory to these signs. We're going to give a little backstory into a king of Israel that God had dealt with through signs. 2 Chronicles 28, verse 1. You guys heard about King Ahaz in this church? Any of you remember the story? I'm going to briefly refresh you so that we can jump right into Isaiah. And we can see what is happening at this time in Israel. Second Chronicles 28 says in verse 1, Ahaz was 20 years old when he became king. Now, before Ahaz was king, his father Jotham was king. And Jotham, according to the word, was a righteous man. He was a righteous man who did what God wanted him to do. And it says he followed after his father David. But Ahaz was different. Unlike David, his father, he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord. He walked in the ways of the kings of Israel and also cast idols for worshiping the Baals. Now, why does it say he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel? Because at that time, Israel and Judah were split. And Israel was a wicked nation and it had been for far longer than Judah was. In fact, if you follow the charts, you'll see that there were far more righteous kings that came out of Judah than did Israel. Verse 3, he burned sacrifices in the, ba- the valley of Ben-Hanom and sacrificed his sons in the fire. Following the detestable ways of the nations, the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. He offered sacrifices and burned incense at the high places, on the hilltops, and under every spreading tree. Therefore, the Lord his God handed him over to the king of Aram. The Arameans defeated him and took many of his people as prisoners and brought them to Damascus. You see, in this king's life, God had promised in Deuteronomy 28, if Israel obeyed the commands, they would be the head and not the tail. But because this king was disobedient, God was sending, God was sending an army on his front doorstep to capture him. Flip on over with me to 2 Kings, 2 Kings 16, verse 7, and we're going to pick up on this story. So Ahaz, as we're reading in, in uh, 2 Chronicles... Ahaz is in trouble. And in verse 7 of 2 Kings 16, Ahaz sent messengers to say to Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, I am your servant and vassal. Come up and save me out of the hand of the king of Aram and the king of Israel who are attacking me. Now what's the problem there? The king is going to a foreign king to ask for help. He's doing that because his faith and he is not obedient to God. He's doing that because he has no faith in the living God. 
He has no faith in the living God, so he's going to the world asking for help. He saw an altar in Damascus and sent to Uriah the priest a sketch of the altar with detailed plans for its construction. So Uriah the priest built the altar in accordance with all the plans that King Ahaz had sent from Damascus and finished it before King Ahaz returned. King Ahaz takes a foreign demonic altar to a foreign god and he sets it up before the altar that God had prescribed through his pattern. King Ahaz went and took something foreign, a foreign pattern, and he brought it to the city of God where God's name dwelled. Because he did not trust in the name of the Lord. Church, when your faith is in anything other than God's word and what God has said, it causes you to go to the world to look for empathy. And when the world gives you empathy, it costs you something. It's going to cost you something, church. It's going to take away the things that God has given you. It's going to take away that promise and that banner that God is trying to give you. And it's going to replace it with a model of the world. Let's skip on down to verse 17. King Ahaz took away the side panels and removed the basins from the movable stands. This is the altar that Solomon built. He removed the sea from the bronze bulls that supported it and set it on a stone base. He took away the Sabbath canopy that had been at the temple and removed the royal entryway outside the temple of the Lord in deference to the king of Assyria. Turn with me back to 2 Chronicles, verse 28. And we're going to see how this ends. And I want you to be ready for it. Then we're going to go right into Isaiah 7. And we're going to see how the story began. All right? 2 Chronicles 28, verse 19. The Lord had humbled Judah because of Ahaz, king of Israel. For he had promoted wickedness in Judah and had been most unfaithful to the Lord. Man, how would you like that to be your, your eulogy? Most unfaithful. I want to be most faithful. Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, came to him, but he gave him trouble instead of help. He was looking to the world but help, for help and got trouble. Ahaz took some of the things from the temple of the Lord and from the royal palace and from the princes and presented them to the king of Assyria, but that did not help him. Oh, church, when you take things out of the temple that God has built in you, when you take the treasures that God has put in your temple and offer them to the world for protection, it will never give you help. It will always give you trouble. You see, when you go to the world for help, it will always result in you pulling out the treasures that God has given you to put in your temple and leaving them for the swine to trample over. We must always trust in the Lord our God. Always trust in the Lord our God. And stop going to the things of the world and giving our treasures that God has given us to them. So how do we do that, church? Well, that happens when we know that we have a promise from God. That happens when we know that we have a word or we have an instruction from a pastor. And then when something comes that seems like it's invading our land, we just give it all up. We just say, no, 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 you can take all the treasures of my temple as long as you give me help. You cave into that fear, just like Ahaz did. 
But that's not where we're going to stop. Ahaz took some of the things from the temple of the Lord and he presented them to the king of Assyria. Church, don't ever let the king of Assyria see your treasures. Don't ever let the king of Assyria get those secret things God has hidden in your heart. In this time of trouble, verse 22, King Ahaz became even more unfaithful to the Lord. He offered sacrifices to the God of Damascus. Man, who would have guessed? Even more unfaithful. Who had defeated him. For he thought, since the gods of the kings of Aram have helped him, I will sacrifice to them so they will help me. But they were his downfall and the downfall of all Israel. Surprisingly enough, the household will follow the leader of the household. Surprisingly enough. Ahaz gathered together the furnishings of the temple of God and took them away. He shut the doors of the Lord's temple and set up altars at every street corner in Jerusalem. In every town in Judah, he built high places to burn sacrifices to other gods. What a sad story. Right, church? You see, we see this, and we see the whole picture, but we don't really know where it began. That's why I want to take you to Isaiah 7. Jump over to Isaiah 7 with me. Are you guys bored? Isaiah 7, verse 1. When Ahaz, son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, was king of Judah, King Rezin of Aram and Pekah, son of Remaliah, king of Israel, marched up to fight against Jerusalem, but they could not overpower it. Now the house of David was told, Aram has allied itself with Ephraim. So the hearts of Ahaz and his people were shaken as the trees of the forest are shaken by the wind. They hear trouble, they hear news of trouble, and their hearts are shaken as the trees are shaken by the wind. Fear begins to creep in to the people of Israel because they are not walking faithfully. They are not walking faithfully. Now, granted, this is before Ahaz went to Damascus and rebuilt an altar. This is before he so-called caused all of Israel to bow down to, to foreign altars. Verse 3, Then the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out and your son, Sheer Jashub, to meet Ahaz at the end of the aqueduct of the upper pool, on the road to the washerman's field. Say to him, Be careful, keep calm, and don't be afraid. Do not lose heart because of these two smoldering stubs of firewood. Man, isn't it good to hear God call them that? Those two kings? Wouldn't you like to hear God say that about your enemies? These two smoldering stubs of firewood. Because of the fierce anger of Rezin and Aram and the son of Remaliah. Verse 5, Aram, Ephraim, and Remaliah's son have plotted your ruin, saying, Let us invade Judah. Let us tear it apart and divide it amongst ourselves and make the son of Tabeel king over it. Yet this is what the sovereign Lord says. It will not take place. It will not happen. For the head of Aram is Damascus. The head of Damascus is only resin. Within 65 years, Ephraim will be too shattered to be a people. The head of Ephraim is Samaria. And the head of Samaria is only Remaliah's son. If you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. God is telling him, I got it under control. Don't worry about this. Do not worry. I have this under control. How many times have we heard that? How many times have we heard, do not worry? You see, I, I'm sharing with you a message that is not just something that I am trying to preach to project. I am not just trying to give you an image 
of what uh, I, want my, I want my life to be like, what I am preaching to you tonight comes directly out of my household. It comes directly out of the inner conversations with me and my wife, in our household, talking amongst each other, rallying up our faith. You're going to hear something that, that comes straight from our heart, okay? You are not to worry about anything, church. Anything. But, but wait, no, 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 you don't understand. You see, I'm in this situation, and everybody else has gotten, everybody else has gotten their mezuzah statement. I, I haven't found mine yet. So I'm at a little bit of a lack. The word says, do not worry about anything. 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 Do not worry about anything, church. What, what happens inevitably when we begin to start talking about mezuzahs and purposes and banners? Inevitably, there are some in our church that will start freaking out because they haven't found that yet. I understand. I used to not have a mezuzah. Well, I've always had a mezuzah, but I used to not know it. I understand what that pressure's like. Tonight, we are preaching about the attitude you should have under a family banner. I believe that we need an attitude adjustment. We need an attitude change. Because there's one thing for sure, that if you haven't found your mezuzah yet, you can still have the right attitude in Christ. See, what happened in my life, I moved to the church in 2013. I'd been in the faith for five years. I'd been to Tanzania. I'd lived there for a year. I'm not going to say I suffered because, honestly, I mean, don't get me wrong. I told Matt earlier, I would have rather jumped off a cliff than do that again. But when I was in Africa, I didn't know my purpose. I was just excited about the Lord. I also didn't have a wife, and I really wanted a wife. And I didn't have one. And here I am, a single guy, knowing only that God has called him to his servants. And I go, and I don't know anything about my purpose. I don't know anything about where I'm supposed to be planted. I don't know anything about how I'm supposed to do it. I just know it needs to be done. I moved to to LCM in 2013, and I began to hear about these mezuzah statements. And I, honestly... It's a mixed feeling when I heard about that because part of me was excited. To me, it seemed so glorious to hear about this because that's what I always wanted was to know why I'd been put on this earth. I wanted to know that and I didn't know how to define it. And when I heard about mezuzah statements and family banners, I found, aha, that's what I've been looking for. But there was a problem. I didn't have it and I didn't know how to find it. But one thing I did remember so clearly being faced with that challenge of finding a mezuzah statement. And, oh, man, it, it's so awesome that Eric Stevens has found his mezuzah statement. We all benefit from it. And it's so awesome that the P-Rose found their mezuzah statement. But I haven't found it. And so what am I? What I did was I intentionally, I was telling the pastors earlier, when I heard about a mezuzah statement, I didn't care about a mezuzah statement. Because what I purposed is that I was going to do what God set before me anyway. And he would be faithful to give it to me along the way. He would be faithful to reveal it as I began to reach out and do the thing that I knew he was putting before me. 
And you want to know what I knew about what God was putting before me? That I was supposed to work an electrical job for $14 an hour digging ditches in the summer of 2013. That's what I knew. No mezuzah statement. I just knew that souls need to be saved. The gospel needs to be preached. I need to love Jesus more. And that's what I was going to do. And so I want to encourage you. Attitude tonight is what we're aiming for. You may not have your mezuzah statement nailed down yet. You may not have your promise sealed, written, written down in the back of your Bible. But one thing you can leave this church with tonight is Holy Ghost attitude in the name of Jesus. You see, God doesn't take men who are sitting on their salvation and give them the best weapons. He takes men who are ready to charge hell, even if all they have is a fork in their hand. He says, here, take this, and then they go to war. Attitude tonight is what we're aiming at. God spoke to Ahaz. It will not take place. Verse 10. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether in the deepest depths or in the highest heights. Woo! Come on! Isn't that amazing for the Lord to ask that? Ask for a sign. Ask for anything in the deepest depths or the highest heights. Anything you ask. I am telling you to ask me for a sign. It's like God is telling Ahaz, come on, reach out in faith. I'll show you anything you want. I just want you to believe. I just want you to go forward in faith. But Ahaz said, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. (laughs) Oh, you've heard, church, do not put the Lord to the test. I've heard, do not put the Lord to the test. I've had people come and ask, what on, the, what on earth are you doing giving everything for the gospel, uh, leaving your family, leaving behind your earthly family, and sacrificing everything for, for this, this cult that you're in? And I tell them, oh, the kingdom requires that you lay down everything. And they say, oh, brother, don't put the Lord to the test. Oh, come on. No, 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 no. Reach out and see if God wants to heal you. Reach out and see if God wants to give you it. Reach out and see if God wants to speak to you. Oh, no, 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 no. The word says, do not put the Lord to the test. I want to let you know that that is not the right attitude. See, God is telling Ahaz, ask me for a sign and I will give it to you. Ask me and I will show you. But Ahaz says, no, 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 no. I won't put the Lord to the test. You know what that is? That is fear. That is the the unwillingness to move forward in faith. That is the unwillingness to accept the radical lifestyle of giving everything for the gospel. And holding on. Your dignity. Holding on to your respectableness. That's what that is. Ahaz didn't want to lose his dignity. He did not want to reach out in faith. Verse 13. Then Isaiah said. Hear now you house of David. Is it enough for you to try the patience of men? Isaiah saying you're trying my patience here. I want to tell you it's not a good thing to try the patience of the prophet of God. 
Will you try the patience of my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. You get that? You see, God said, ask for a sign. And Ahaz, no, no, mm -mm, not going to do it. And Isaiah says, fine, the Lord's going to give you a sign anyway. You didn't accept the Lord's sign that he wanted to give you. He'll give you a different sign. Verse 14, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son. And we will call him Emmanuel. He will eat curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. But before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid to waste. This is how we know that that boy was to be born before those two kings were destroyed. This is how we know that boy was born in Isaiah's day. I believe that this is talking about Hezekiah. Now there's another prophetic message in chapter 9 that talks about Emmanuel and the government will be on his shoulders and he'll be the prince of peace and we'll call him everlasting God. But if you want to know more about that, buy me a cigar or one of those things that we like to offer up incense with to the Lord. God is telling Ahaz, hey, since you didn't ask for a sign, guess what? I'm going to give you a sign and the sign will be your son. He will do the work that you were afraid to do. Church, if you won't accept the sign, if you won't step out in faith, God will raise up your children to do it. He'll raise up my children to do it. I don't want my children to have to fall in to do the work that I was supposed to do. Now let's continue on to chapter 8, verse 1. You know what? Let's skip down to verse 6, if you will. Stay there when you're there. Because this people has rejected the gently flowing waters of Shiloh and rejoices over Rezin and the son of Remaliah. Therefore, the Lord is about to bring the mighty floodwaters of the river, the king of Assyria with all his pomp. It will overflow all the channels, run over all its banks, and sweep onto Judah, swirling over it, passing through it and reaching up to its neck. Its outspread wings will cover the breath of your land, O Emmanuel. You see, God is telling them through Isaiah, it's not going to be resin, and it's not going to be a ram. I will bring a new king in to destroy you, and it's the king of Assyria. Now, Isaiah, realizing this, Isaiah is a man full of faith. And in chapter 9, he sees Ahaz's failure, and he sees the prophecy of what God is saying. And he says in chapter 9, Raise the war cry, you nations, and be shattered. Listen, all you distant lands. Prepare for battle and be shattered. Prepare for battle and be shattered. Devise your strategy, but it will be thwarted. Propose your plan, but it will not stand. For God is with us. Emmanuel, God is with us. It says in verse 9, raise the war cry, you nations. Any of you have a footnote in your Bible? What does it say? Do your worst and be thwarted. Do your worst, enemy of God, and be thwarted. Do your worst and be thwarted. Isaiah is standing there 
And he's prophesying to the nations that he's saying, do your worst and that plan will be thwarted. That is the call of every man of God to look at the enemy and say, do your worst. Here I am. Come get me. I am here in the land that God has put me. Come get me. Do your worst. Bring it. Bring it, Assyria. Do your worst. It gets even better. Verse 11 says, the Lord spoke to me with his strong hand upon me. And if you feel that strong hand before, that strong hand that grips your soul, that strong hand that speaks to you and you know that it's the king of kings. Warning me not to follow the way of this people. He said, do not call conspiracy everything that these people call conspiracy. Do not fear what they fear and do not dread it. The Lord Almighty is the one you are to regard as holy. He is the one you are to fear. He is the one you are to dread. And he will be a sanctuary for both houses of Israel and Judah. And he will be a stone that causes men to stumble. A rock that causes them to fall. And for the people of Jerusalem, he will be a trap and a snare. Many of them will stumble. They will fall and be broken. They will be snared and captured. Isaiah is seeing this and he's saying, do your worst. Do your worst because Isaiah knows that a righteous remnant will survive. And then he says something truly marvelous. Verse 18, he says, after hearing about the ruin, after hearing about the destruction that's going to come, after calling out the nations and saying, bring it on. He says in verse 18, here am I and the children the Lord has given me. We are signs and symbols in Israel from the Lord Almighty who dwells on Mount Zion. We are signs and symbols. We are the signs and symbols declaring to the nations what God is trying to do in this place. You see, when you become aware of the times and the signs, when you become aware of the things going around in your life, when you can hear what God is trying to do, you become the sign. You become the symbols in the place that God has planted. And I'm going to tell you something, church. Those signs cannot be destroyed. They can't be uprooted. They can't be erased because God planted them. Ezekiel says the same thing. Ezekiel says in chapter 12, verse 6, Cover your face so that you cannot see the land, for I have made you a sign for the house of Israel. In verse 8, the morning of the, In the morning the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, did not that rebellious house of Israel ask you, what are you doing? Because what God tells them to is obviously not normal. Verse 10, he says, say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. The oracle concerns the prince in Jerusalem and the whole house of Israel who are there. Say to them, I am a sign to you. Ezekiel in exile becomes a sign. What God is doing in his life becomes a sign to them. He says the same thing in Ezekiel 24, verse 24. Ezekiel will be a sign to you. You will do just as he has, just as he has done. Ephesians 3.10 says that God's intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, according to His eternal purpose, which He accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
the church becomes a sign to not just the earth. The church is the pillar of truth on this earth. The church is God's revealed wisdom to all the powers, not just on the earth, but in the heavens. The heavens are looking down at the church and they're saying, what miserable, pitiful little things that God has bestowed His power on. But look at the things they're doing. How could they do such things? They're pitiful little humans. Because it's not, what's, it's not us. It's the power of God within us. The powers are looking and they're saying, what? How in the world do they have such love from the throne room of God? How do they have such power? How do they have such perseverance? Because they are the chosen signs that God is using. I want to tell you tonight, church, the goal is that you become the sign. You are becoming the oath. You are becoming the miraculous thing God is doing. You are becoming the thing to show the world so they can go and look and see what the God of Israel is like. God has chosen you, church, to be a sign. Turn with me to 1 Peter 3, verse 13. Isaiah says, in the midst of difficulty and persecution, he says, we are signs and symbols. Those signs were planted on a a ravaged, war-torn battlefield. And that's where those signs shine brighter. Peter picks up on this theme. And in 1 Peter 3, verse 13, he says, Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? Ask yourself that, church. Who is going to harm you if you're eager to do good? Who is going to harm you if you follow God's will? Who is going to harm you if you sacrifice everything for the gospel? Who's going to harm you? Paul says in Romans, I am convinced that no power or authority, demon or angel, can separate us from the love of God. Who is going to harm you, church, if you're eager to do good? No one can harm you. But does it feel like that? No. Sometimes it feels like we have everything to lose. Sometimes it feels like we're destructible. Verse 14 says, but even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. You are blessed if you suffer for what is right. And then he says something interesting. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be frightened. But in your heart set apart Christ as Lord. What is he quoting? Sounds like he's quoting Isaiah 8. Oh, that's because he is quoting Isaiah 8. Do not fear what they fear. Do not fear what the rest of the world around you is fearing. But in your heart, set apart Christ as Lord. He is the one. He is our captain. He is our Lord. Isaiah says, it is God who we are to regard as holy. Peter says, set apart Christ as Lord. Set apart Christ as Lord. Obey no other voice that comes and speaks to you except for Christ who is your Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer. Why, church? Because you're a sign. Why must you always give an answer? Because you're a sign pointing to Christ as Lord. Always be ready to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Why are they asking that? Because you're on a ravaged, 
war-torn battlefield. You're a sign that's planted. You're indestructible. And they want to know how. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience, so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. It is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Hear that, church. It is better to suffer for doing good. For Christ died for sins once and for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit, through whom also He went and preached to the spirits in prison. He went and preached to the spirits in prison. Peter's setting up Christ as our example. You see, Christ had a mission to accomplish on the earth. But you know what? Death didn't even come close to being the end of that mission. Death didn't even come close to being the mission for the end of the mission for Christ because he still had work to do after death. And Jesus Christ was so bold as to go down into the depths of hell and preach to those who had left long ago. That is the kind of indestructible faith that our Lord and Savior had. Oh, I was crucified on the cross. Oh, I was put into the grave. Oh, I was sent to earth to be with humans. I came from the Father's side from eternity, but I was put in a grave. But I am not done yet. I'm going to go down and preach to those who rebelled long ago. And you want to know what? He didn't, he didn't go down to hell to preach to those because there was a chance for them. You don't want to know why he did it? To flaunt it in their face that he had the victory, that he had the power, that he won. He flaunted the victory. He went down to do a dance on them. He went down to say, you tried. You tried to take me down. Well, here I am. You thought I was down. Well, I'm back. That is the indestructible kind of attitude. That is the indestructible attitude we must have. Colossians 2 verse 14 says, Having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us, he took it away, nailing it to the cross, and having disarmed the powers and authorities. Disarmed the powers and authorities. He made a public spectacle of them. How many of you, church, want to make a public spectacle of the enemy? That is indestructible attitude to make a public spectacle of the enemy. Revelation 1.18, I am the living one. I was dead, and now look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. Not even the devil has those keys anymore. Because Jesus, with the indestructible attitude, went down and snatched them away. He had already snatched you out of his hands. He had already snatched you out of a life of sin. And he said, I want more. I want those keys. So he went down to get them. (laughs) You guys still in 1 Peter 3? Verse 20 says, Those who disobeyed long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah. It's an interesting theological statement. While the ark was being built... And only a few, in it, only a few people, eight and all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism. Go on to chapter 4, verse 1. So you see the attitude in which Peter's writing in chapter 3, do you? 
He's talking about an indestructible attitude. He's talking about a captain who even after death still has the urge to fight, still has the urge to gloat over the enemy. In that vein, Peter continues in chapter 4. says, Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with this same attitude. Arm yourselves also with this same attitude. That same attitude to flaunt it in the devil's face. That same attitude that says, I'm going. It doesn't even matter if I die, because if I die, I'll still get victory. Reminds me of Obi-Wan Kenobi looking at Darth Vader and saying, if you strike me down, I'll only become more powerful than you can ever imagine. Death is not the end of me, because when I rise up out of that grave, I am still going to have some fight left. I am an indestructible sign. Arm yourselves with the same attitude, because he who has suffered in the body is done with sin. Something beautiful happens when you suffer, when you go into battle like Jesus did. Sin no longer really has an interest. A craving leaves for sin. Once you have gotten in the trench, climbed out of the trench, ran in the face of hail, hailing bullets, and you ran into the enemy's trench, you're not thinking about what you're going to eat for dinner. You're not thinking about what it's going to cost you. You want to win. And you don't want to lose. He who has suffered in his body is done with sin. Verse 2, as a result, he does not live the rest of his earthly life for human, evil human desires. Evil human desires. Which one do you want, church, to suffer like Christ did or evil human desires? Suffer like Christ did. Evil human desires. Be damned. But rather for the will of God. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what the pagans choose to do. You've spent enough time, church, doing what the pagans do. You spent enough time, church, doing what the pagans do. How much time is enough? How much time is enough to stop living in the things that pagans live in? You only have one life, church, and it's time to arm yourself with the indestructible attitude of Christ and stop living like the rest of the world. Living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. Sounds like things that, you know, well, you know, I don't actually go and engage in those things. But can you find these things in your heart? Or do you have the attitude like Christ who is indestructible? You have an unshakable faith. Or do you cower with fear? They think it's strange that you do not plunge with them into the same flood of dissipation and they heap abuse on you. But they will have to give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is the reason the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead so that they might be judged according to men in regard for the body but live according to God in regard to the spirit. Deuteronomy 28 verse 7 says, the Lord will grant that the enemies who rise up against you will be defeated before you. They will come at you from one direction, but flee from you in seven. You are indestructible, church. If you stand in Christ, you are indestructible. And nothing 
can move you. Psalm 118 verse 6 says, The Lord is with me. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Sounds like a man who knows he's indestructible. What can man do to me? The Lord is with me. He is my helper. I will look in triumph over my enemies. What can man do to you, church, if you are in Christ? You are indestructible. It doesn't matter if your finances are not there. It doesn't matter if your entire family is sick. It doesn't matter if you're fighting the same battles in your household over and over. You still are indestructible because you stand in Christ. You are indestructible. And you shall not let your faith be wavered because of things that you see coming against you. We have an indestructible kind of faith. Isaiah 54, verse 16. No weapon forged against you will prevail, and you will refute every tongue that accuses you. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and this is their vindication from me. Come on, servants of the Lord. You will refute every tongue that accuses you. No weapon forged forged against you will prevail, because you are indestructible. Psalm 2, verse 4. The one enthroned in heaven laughs, and the Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in His anger and terrifies them in His wrath, saying, I have installed my king, I have installed my sign on Zion, my holy hill. What does the Lord do? He scoffs. He laughs. He's laughing at them because He knows that their attempts are futile. There is nothing that they can do to uproot the signs that He's planted The Lord is laughing at them. Psalm 37 is the best. Verse 12 says, The wicked... See, now hold on. It's one thing when the Lord laughs at somebody who's coming against Him. In our mind, we're like, Oh, of course, nobody can defeat the eternal King of Kings, right? Look what Psalm 37 says. The wicked plot against the righteous... And gnash their teeth at them. But the Lord laughs at the wicked. For he knows their day are, is coming. When the wicked are coming against the righteous. The Lord looks at him and goes. Ha! Is that the best you can do? Bring it on. Do your worst. Come on. Hit me. Hit me. Bring it on. And he laughs. Because there's nothing that the enemy can do. To shake you. We have an indestructible attitude in this place. 1 Corinthians 15.20 says, But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Oh, you think the enemy was laughing. Wait till he comes up out of that grave, church. Oh, man, you think the, you think the Romans and the leaders that crucified him were laughing. Wait till he walks up out of that grave. He's the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, Adam, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man, Jesus. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own turn. Christ the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Who is that church? That is us. Then the end will come. When he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. 
For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. What did we hear Brother Nick say, the, say tonight? The Lord wants to put his enemies under our feet. But Christ will have the enemies under his feet. We will have his enemies under our feet. Because we're indestructible with him. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Church, you have to get it grained in your soul. That nothing can defeat you. Not even death. Not even death. As a matter of fact, death doesn't end your walk. Death doesn't end your story. Death doesn't end your life. Death is just the beginning. Because we are indestructible. 1 Corinthians 15, 50. Skip down to verse 50. I declare to you, brothers, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash and the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. Man, I am waiting for that day. I want us to all be changed into what we really are. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality. Did you hear that, church? Immortality. We will have immortality for those of us who are in Christ. For the wicked, they will have no such thing. For those in in this world who walk in wickedness, who live in wickedness, they will perish eternally. But for those of us in Christ, we will have immortality. We will have immortality When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Death will be swallowed up. Romans 2.7 says, To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. You can seek immortality, church. You can run after immortality. You could choose to live an immortal life, an indestructible life. 2 Timothy 1.10 says, But it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. What Jesus Christ did Jesus being the sign for all humanity is He has won immortality for every man who chooses to be in Him. Every man, every person who walks after Him can have an indestructible life. Back in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul writes, Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? Death has no victory and no sting for those of us who are in Christ. When we face death, because we live an indestructible life, we could stare death right in the face, and it does not affect us. Even in our death, it does not affect us. The sting of death is sin, but the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Your labor in the Lord is not in vain. 
Brothers and sisters, your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Because you have an indestructible attitude. When you have this indestructible attitude, like I said, this is something that we talk about in my house all the time. When we get bogged down with with cares and worries, and it seems like things are, are just totally, totally not going the right way, we look at each other and we say, there is no reason to be cast down. Not even death has a sting. We have an indestructible kind of faith. There is nothing that can tear us down. And if we would have that same attitude, if we would have that same attitude, church, I promise God will reveal more and more. I promise we will see more and more fruit. With this kind of attitude, knowing we have an indestructible faith, we ought to be looking for the opportunity to die. We ought to be looking for the opportunity to really test our mettle. I don't know about you, but when I get something like a new tool or a vehicle, I want to test it out. When you, have rece- when you received your faith, did the first thing that came to your mind is, I want to test this thing out. I want to see how much I can handle. I want to see how much could be thrown my way. Because that's what God is doing to you. God created you in Him, and He's saying, I want to see how much this thing can handle. I want to test it. I want to see if it's really indestructible. 2 Corinthians 12, verse 7, verse 8. Paul's saying, three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, I am strong. Now, hold, hold on. We all say that. We all say that we delight in weaknesses. We've all seen that knitted on a pillow somewhere. We've all heard somebody get up and, well, I delight in my weaknesses. What does that really mean? Does that mean that we live life kind of humble and meek and we just look at the ground everywhere and we try not to to raise a fuss and we try not to raise a big scene and we try to be courteous all the time and what does it mean to be weak church does it mean that that we walk around limp or we walk around lacking spiritual spine no 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 church what paul is saying He's not saying, I delight in being the weakest thing in the room. I delight in being the most spiritually impotent. I delight in not even being able to push up my own weight spiritually. That's not what what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, see, Paul knows when God speaks to him and says, my grace is sufficient, that's God's way of saying, hey, you're indestructible, deal with it. You're indestructible, handle it. Quit yourself like a man and handle it. You are a part of an indestructible faith. Paul is saying, I delight in driving myself to the point where I've got nothing left because that's when his power steps in. I delight delight in running out of gas spiritually because Christ comes and fills me up with a new Holy Spirit type of fuel. He's saying, I delight giving 
I delight in not having a reserve. I delight in having no holds barred. I like, I delight in having zero faith because that's the point when I can really show that I'm indestructible. Paul is saying, I like to show that I'm indestructible. Therefore, I throw myself into the test. I throw myself into the most difficult possible thing to show what I'm made of. Because I know what I'm made of is the faith of old. I know what I'm made of is the ancient of days living in me. That's what Paul's saying. We delight in weaknesses because it shows our true metal. It shows our spine. We delight in, in, in getting scarred for Jesus because it shows the blood of Jesus coming out of us. We delight in taking a beat down for Jesus because it shows the unwavering faith to get back up and do it again. That's what Paul's saying. And when you reach that point, church, you say, oh, I'm indestructible, I'm indestructible. No, when you reach the point when you really are found in a test and you see that what's inside you really is indestructible, oh, church, what kind of confidence is that? What a kind of confidence is it to, to go through the battle, to go through the test and win and survive. See, for us in Christ, there is no letdown. There is no defeat. There's no give up because we know what's inside us is an overcoming, victorious, conquering, reigning kingdom of heaven coming to earth type of faith. Second Corinthians 13 says, for to be sure he was crucified in weakness. Yet he lives by God's power. He was crucified in weakness, yet he lives by God's power. Paul said in Galatians, I am crucified to the world, and the world is crucified to me. I am crucified in Christ, but nevertheless I live. But not I, but Christ that lives in me. That is an, that is an unshakable, that is an indestructible kind of attitude. To be crucified in weakness... And live by God's power. Likewise, we are weak in Him, yet by God's power we will live with Him to serve you. Only have a few more passages, church. Are you with me? Only have a few more passages, and we are going to stir up this type of warrior-like, this indestructible attitude, this attitude that says, I will jump over any obstacle, the kind of attitude that says, bring it on, enemy. What you gave me last week was not strong enough to take me down. I want another. I want to show you what's inside me. Revelation 20, verse 9. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Oh, man, church, that is a gem right there. That is a gem right there for you to look at the enemy and say, Hey, you know how much of a trial this is for me, but I know where you're going to be at the end. Come on, devil. I know who has the victory, and I'm not going anywhere. In August 1914, the British soldiers were caught, few in number, unprepared, handicapped to the uttermost, so few they need not to be shot. Just march over them, said the Kaiser, the leader of the German army. They could not possibly win. Those few contemptibles, 
But they could and would fight. Aye, and they would die. And so gain time for others to come and fight and die. And others, and yet others. Yea, as those British soldiers at Ciudad Rodrigo and Badajoz flung themselves on the bayonets of the Chevaux de Frise and died to enable their fellows to storm into and take those fortresses over their dying and dead bodies, so also did the contemptibles. And others devote themselves to death, that their king and country might survive and conquer, and that their families should not suffer a hell on earth through the vile debauchery of the enemy. The contemptibles were few, but they had the DCD spirit. Others caught that spirit and handed it on to those behind. Thus, they all, with a DCD mind, marched and fought like a searing flame. And dying, they called to the host behind, Come on, play the game. So they fought, and so they died, and so they won the war for us. How did they do it? They were DCDs. During the war, some of the bishops began to learn the glorious lesson and to teach that if the church would once again be terrible as an army with banners, <laughs> kind of funny, she, w- she must regain the militant spirit she had lost. That is what the church needs, folks, is to regain that militant, indestructible spirit. Yes, indeed. But where is that militant spirit today? Ichabod. The only militant spirit to be seen in the church today is one in favor of superstition, frippery, smells, and fancy dresses. Opportunism and infidelity have together taken the place of the simplicity, purity, self-sacrifice, and valor of the apostles and the apostolic church. Hence our poverty and power and heroism, which makes us stink in the nostrils of heaven and earth and become the laughing stock of hell. Such is not the real spirit. The real spirit is the soldier hero spirit. Not that of all soldiers. Not of those at Waterloo who charged full speed homewards instead of the front. Because they said their horses were their own property. Nay, but it is the spirit of the French drummer boy who, told to beat a retreat, said that he had never learned to beat that retreat. But he could beat a pass de charge at the word of a command and who did it knowing that it was 50 to 1 against his coming back alive. The spirit of the British Tommy who never failed but ever went over the top over the top at the word of command, and who did it knowing that the chances against his coming back alive were zero to none. And if he came out alive, it was 100 to 1 against his coming back, otherwise than disfigured and maimed for life. And then after death loomed the great day, which held for him no assurance of bliss beyond compare, but rather the fearful looking for the judgment. Listen! These British Tommies, for their king and country, their families, and their own fair name, would go willingly to death. 
I and to hell. That spirit alone, that spirit for Christ is the only spirit befitting a genuine follower follower of Jesus. And that is the spirit of the DCD. That is the spirit that Christ demands. That is the spirit of the heroes of God in the Bible. That is what the unbelieving world rightly requires of every true Christian. That is the spirit of our own consciences, consciences demand of us. Unless, forsooth, we have the hearts and consciences of poltroons. That the spirit, that is the spirit of Moses and David and Daniel and the prophets, of the Maccabees and of John the Baptist. That is the spirit of the Christ and his apostles. That is the only mate fit for the holy conquering spirit of God. He will never mate. He will never mate with any other nor through other do his mighty works. And with no other spirit can this rebellious, devil-driven world ever be evangelized. Yes, but how describe this spirit, this attitude? Can we call it the Tommy Atkins spirit? Can we, church? Can we call it the Tommy Atkins spirit? No, that does not describe it sufficiently. We must go to the root of the matter will ask their officers, what is the spirit of Tommy Atkins that makes him so unconquerable, that makes him so indestructible? From the field marshal to the last joined subaltern, Tommy Atkins. To all men say that name. We know the thing well enough, but who can describe it? Ask the sergeant major. Now the sergeant major had trained Tommy Atkins, and so he knows and replies, listen to this, Well, sirs, it's this way. Tommy don't care a damn what happened to him so long as he does the duty by his king, his country, his regiment, and himself. Tommy don't care a damn about himself as long as he does his duty. Ah, yes, that's the thing. The very thing. The only way to describe it. He don't care a damn what happens to himself so long as I, that's it. That's what we need and must have. A DCD doesn't care a damn what happens to himself so long as our Lord Jesus Christ is glorified. Yes, which makes the greater demand. Which makes the greater demand of its soldiers? The British Empire or that of Christ? The King of England or the King of the Universe? That's the spirit that we need to arise in us, church. That's the attitude which we must have is the don't care a damn about our own lives, about our own possessions, about our own comforts, about our own likes, about our own dislikes. We want the king to receive glory. We want to live in an indestructible attitude. Acts 20, 24. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. I consider my life worth nothing to me. If only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus gave me. Oh, I want nothing but to complete that task. I want nothing to complete that task. General Patton, George Patton looked at his soldiers before they went to invade Africa. He looked at them and said, Listen, gentlemen, if you go and you come back alive and we don't have victory, I don't want to see you. 
Because it would be better to die fighting the enemy and die fighting for victory than to live in defeat. And I promise if you all had that same, this is still patent quoting, he said, if you all go into battle with that same kind of vigor and courage, I assure you we will have victory. And church, I'm standing here today and saying that if you have an indestructible attitude, if you have an indestructible faith and an attitude that says, I don't care a damn about what I have to sacrifice, I'm going to do it. Because not even death is the end of me. Not even death is too far. Not even the death of my own life is too much for me to give to Jesus. All of it belongs to Him. I am indestructible. If only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus gave me. That's my prayer for my own life, for my family, for all of us. That we complete the task no matter what it costs, church. No matter what it costs. No matter how much your faith gets shaken. Because it's indestructible anyway. Hebrews 7.15 And what we have said is even more clear if another priest like Melchizedek appears. One who has become priest not only on the basis of a regulation into his ancestry, but on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. An indestructible life. Our priest, our high priest walked in an indestructible life. And he's calling you to be a holy priesthood through him. That means you are to have an indestructible life. Be strong and courageous, church. Do not be afraid. Do not be terrified because of them. For the Lord your God goes with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you because He will ransom you from the power of the grave. He will redeem you from death. If you go to the heavens, He is there, church. If you go down to the grave, He is there, church. Because those that lose their life will find it. Behold, He is coming soon. His reward is with Him, and He will give everyone according to what they have done, because the perishable will be clothed with the imperishable. For through, for though a righteous man fall seven times, he gets back up. I'll tell you tonight, church, nothing can come against you. Nothing can come against you and destroy you completely. We need to have more of that attitude that looks right at the enemy and says, bring your worst because I can handle it. Lord, I want to pay full price because I can handle it. I don't want to let somebody else jump out of the trench and gain the glory for the king. I want to include my life, my indestructible life in that way. I want to give glory to the king. We are hard-pressed on every side, church. But we cannot be crushed. We are perplexed, but we cannot be in despair. We are persecuted, but we can never be fully abandoned. We are struck down at times, but we cannot be destroyed. It's because we have an indestructible faith. We have an indestructible king. We are an indestructible sign to those. We're going to end tonight in Hebrews 10, verse 32 through 39. As I was saying at the beginning of the message, it is totally true 
that it's not the size of the dog in the fight. It's the size of the fight in the dog. I have seen little dogs scare away big dogs because of the size of the fight that's in them. Church, we need to ask the Lord to, ha- to give us a fighting attitude, to increase our fighting spirit, to increase our hunger and our thirst for battle. I'm appealing to you as someone who loves to go into the thick of it. Ask my brothers. I look for the opportunity where we can suffer because I feel like I'm alive in that moment. I'm appealing to you, and not just the men, the women as well. You ever read Fox's Book of Martyrs? Read about the women who stood up when men denied Jesus and the women says, hey, I'll take his spot. I'll take his spot because he's worthy. I'll take his spot because I have an indestructible faith. We're not just preaching to the women, to the men. It's the women as well. Conquer fear. Rule over it. You have an indestructible faith. Hebrews 10.32 says, Remember those earlier days after you had received the light when you stood your ground in a great contest in the face of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times you stood side by side with those who were so treated. Where are you now? If this is something that happened in earlier days, tonight, let's renew that spirit of vigor inside of us. Let's renew that attitude of indestructible, unshakable faith. You sympathized with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. So do not throw away your confidence, church. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. What good is it if a soldier charges into the enemy's camp? What good is it if a soldier takes bullet wound after bullet wound and gets back up? Just to finish the battle, complete the objective, but then go AWOL after the battle. How many battles have you won so far? You just want to give those up? Think of those things. Think of those moments in your life when you knew you had an indestructible walk. You knew you had an indestructible faith. You knew you had an indestructible king standing beside you. Do you want to let those be your glory days? Or do you want more for the king? Do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. For he who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one will live by faith. And if he shrinks back, I will not be pleased with him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who believe and are saved. Church, I'm going to say this to you with with everything in me. There are those times when your finances seem to be wrecked, when your sin has left you shamed and guilty. There are times when you're not sure if you can manage your own household or your children. There are times when you're not sure because you don't have a mezuzah statement and everyone else around you seems to have one. Those times are the times when you show how indestructible you really are. George Mueller was an evangelist in Germany. And he said, I will not let a frown be on my face. I will not let tears come from my eyes. I will not let 
myself seem sulking. I will not let myself seem to be in despair. Because if people see me, a man who is on a mission for Jesus, if they see me with a sulking face, what will they think about my king? What will they think about the one who called me? Church, it's time to rise up with that indestructible attitude so that we can show that he is indestructible. Amen? Stand on your feet. Let's rise up. Do y'all sense a Holy Ghost attitude inside of Justin? Amen. This is something that we have to build upon. Here's what I mean. What I heard coming out of Justin is that it's an imperative that we have an indestructible attitude. That indestructible attitude is established in order to gain confidence. But you know what that indestructible attitude is built upon? An indestructible promise that is aimed at giving hope. And what is that indestructible promise built upon? An indestructible family banner. We are on a series about building a family banner. And what you should hear from this is that even though you don't have the details of exactly what stage in building your family banner is, you have to have an attitude that says, I'm going to give it all, trusting that God is going to reveal His all back to me. So as we enter into God's presence, I want us to enter with a confidence. Like the one mentioned in Hebrews, therefore, since we, ha- since we have confidence to enter the most holy place, no mourning, no weeping, no groveling. We're going to hold up our heads and with a Holy Ghost attitude, go into the Holy of Holies and expect the King of Kings to reveal His will to us. Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you for this word that has come forth to spur on our hearts, to give it all, to not care a damn about our own lives, but instead to go after everything of who you are, trusting that you will match our attitude and our pursuit of your kingdom. Let your glory come at the expense of us laying down our lives for you. We love you, Jesus, and we thank you for your revelation that changes our family back. Amen.